Darkcast Network. Welcome to the dark side of podcasting. Welcome to Murder and Mimosas, a true crime podcast brought to you by a mother and daughter duo, bringing you murder stories with the mimosas in hand. Just a quick disclaimer before we get started. Our show is Murder and Mimosa. It's a true crime podcast. This means that we do discuss crimes, including but not limited to disappearances, murder, and sexual assault. All our episodes are told with the respect of the victims and the victims' families in mind. We strive to ensure that we provide factual information, but some information is more verifiable than others. With that, grab your mimosas and let's dive in. Welcome back to Murder and Mimosas. I'm Danica. And I'm Shannon. Today, we're going to tell you the story about Ruth Finley. So grab your mimosas, you sip while we share. This story, if you haven't heard of her, is going to have you scratching your head when we are done. So I'm intrigued. Let's get started. Well, in 1946, Ruth was staying at a boarding house where she had rented a room while she went to high school. At the time, Ruth is just 16 and just returned back from buying some groceries. Suddenly, she sees an older man she doesn't know, and he's at the door. The man enters and grabs Ruth and begins to rip her clothes. So Ruth tried to fight back, and she, like, pokes the man's eyes with her thumbs. The man, being no match for Ruth, covered her mouth with a rag that had chloroform on it. But before she went out, she saw him heating a flat iron on the stove. When Ruth did wake up, she had, like, first-degree burns on both her sides and scratches, like, all over her body. Oh, my gosh. That is horrible. You said her clothes were ripped. I'm assuming she was probably raped, too. So, oddly enough, she actually wasn't raped. Uh, Ruth tried to put all this behind her, and for the most part, she did. She married Ed Finley, an accountant. The two of them had two sons together. Ruth worked as a secretary for the telephone company, lived in a fairly nice neighborhood, pretty modest home. The boys grew up and they eventually left home and the Finleys were now empty nesters. Okay, but back up a little. Was this man ever caught? No, not to my knowledge. That's got to keep you on edge, though. Experiencing something like that, that traumatic and knowing he's still out there. I mean, I know it would for me, that's for sure. But in June of 1977, Ed fell to the ground while working in the backyard in what they thought was a heart attack. Ed was in the hospital, and the day was traumatic for Ruth, too, because she thought, you know, there's a possibility she's losing her husband, which I'm sure, like, really shook her up. Well, Ruth, she's home alone while Ed's in the hospital, and the phone rings. She answers it, you know, fingers crossed, praying that it's not bad news about Ed, and the caller asks... If this is Ruth Smock from Fort Scott, Kansas. Yes, she says. I know all about that night, the caller says. Then he begins to read the news article from the Fort Scott Tribune. It read, branded on both thighs by a hot flat iron, apparently by a sex maniac. Ruth Smock, 16-year-old Fort Scott high school girl. I have no idea what you're talking about, Ruth replies. 
I work for a construction company, and we were tearing down an old house in Fort Scott. I found these newspaper articles on the wall of the house. If you don't give me money to keep quiet, I'll spread the news of your teenage attack. By the way, I know where you work. Ruth was scared but didn't know what to do. She didn't want to tell Ed. I mean, right now he's in the hospital. She doesn't want to put all this on him. I mean, can she call the police? I mean, she doesn't really know if that's a possibility or not. So she decides just not to do anything right now. After about a week, Ed is released from the hospital and a little bit of time, things go back to normal for a few weeks anyway. In the summer of 1977, Ruth is sitting at her desk when she receives an envelope with her name written across the top. Ruth opens the envelope to find a news article from the Fort Scott Tribune depicting what happened to her in 1946. Ruth is shocked. She's terrified. She feels unsafe. Not knowing what to do, she just tears up the article and she chunks it in the trash. Somehow I don't think that's the course of action I would say. Hey, we're all different. My thoughts exactly. You don't know if this was the man that attacked you in the 40s, which she said he appeared to be around 50 then. So now he'd be in his 80s. Or is it just some random dude that found articles and is trying to mess with her? Either way, I feel like I'd be doing a little bit more than just tossing it in the trash and pretending it's not happening. She starts to get random calls at the house. No one says anything before she hangs up, and if Ed answers the phone, it's just dial tone. In June of 1978, Ruth was in downtown Wichita shopping, and she walked past an alley when she felt someone grab her wrist. Ruth quickly jerked her hand free and started running across the street into the store. The man yelled, Ruth, get back here, you stupid witch, and talk to me. She called Ed and asked him to come get her. Then she told Ed about everything, and he suggested that they go to the police, which they did. I don't want to diss the police, but we know from stalking cases, there really isn't much they can do. So, I mean, what happened, if anything? Pretty much like you said, nothing happened. There's very little they can do in that situation. Um, So October of 1978, Ruth receives another letter, this time in the mail. It's unmarked, just has her name written across the envelope in black letters. So this means this dude knows where she lives because he has her address now. Evidently, it seems to be that way because it looks like it's just been placed in the mailbox. And the letter letter reads, F you, F the police, and F the telephone company. So when Ed gets home, he insists they take this directly to the police. This time they're introduced to Lieutenant Bernie Drorsky, and he's with the Criminal Investigation Division Unit. Of course, police normally don't care that you get a threatening letter, but right now the things that are going on is BTK is raining terror on the city. Not to mention, BTK loved to send letters to the newspaper about the police or even to taunt the police directly with letters. I didn't even put that city and time frame together, so... They think this could be BTK? Yes. Otherwise, I don't think that they would have taken it as seriously as they did. So Ruth tells him about the calls and what she's received so far. And the police say he'll look into it. But I mean, how much can he really do? They obviously don't know who the BTK killer is. So 
They're just right. I mean, what can you do? So the very next week, Ruth received another letter that read, I can tell if anybody's watching me. Don't be a dumb witch again and blow this. I will try to be your friend, but when you're a dumb witch, I don't like you. This time you will talk to me when I call you soon. Wherever you go, on water or land, you still get paid or I tell about your brand. I'm smart and know things to do. You talk to the people I despise, like police lieutenant and tell spies. I don't know if that was supposed to be a poem. It's poorly written. Ruth took the letter immediately to Lieutenant Dorsky. More and more letters continued to come. And Ed would usually take them to the station. The police would send them to the lab for fingerprints. But they never found any other than Ruth's or Ed's, of course. I'm assuming he's wearing gloves. Smart, I guess. Are there more calls? And if so, does he ever even say anything? So there are more calls, but still no one ever says anything on the other end of the phone. Well, November of 1978, Ruth is on her lunch break and she gets goes downtown because she has a few errands to run. And as she's leaving a greeting card store, this blue and bluish green 1964 Chevrolet Bel Air pulls up to the curb. The same man that grabbed her wrist from the alley from before is asking, have you got my money? At the same time, kicking Ruth in the shin. Ruth doubles over in pain, of course, and as she does, the man grabs her and shoves her to the backseat of his car and then climbs in alongside her. There happens to be another man in the driver's seat, and so he speeds off. The man in the back and the man in the front go through her purse. They start to argue back and forth, and after about four hours, Ruth asks them if she can go pee. The man in the back told the one in the front to stop at the park on West 21st Street. They let her out to pee, but before doing so, made her give them her shoes and her sweater, I'm assuming to ensure that she would be less likely to run. So she and the man who was in the backseat get out of the car so Ruth can pee, and Ruth reaches for her purse, for her mace, and she actually sprays it in her face. In his face, I'm sorry. Nancy from Damsel in Distress would be so proud of her. She definitely would be super proud to know that she had her mace on there and she used it. Ruth took off immediately running and hid behind this huge bush. She could hear the men like looking for her and yelling for her and she's freezing, but she didn't care. She was not coming out. She was getting bitterly cold, but she wasn't moving because she was terrified that she'd get caught again. After a while, she could no longer hear voices and could no longer stand the cold. So she raised up to see if the men were gone and they were. So she ran to the closest place she could find, which was a liquor store and begged the man to call the police. She also asked the man if he would call her husband too. Ed had already reported her missing when she didn't come home from work and so relieved to hear her voice. Police take her to the station. They get a report. Ruth, of course, is frazzled, just out of out of wits. but. Physically, all in all, she seems to be okay. The kidnappers had stolen her paycheck and a $100 savings bond. No one wants their hard-earned money taken, but of course, this could be really worse. So thank God she's okay. Yes. So the following day, a detective goes to the park where he recovered her sweater and her shoes. He was able to locate Ruth's footprints, but 
unfortunately wasn't able to locate any other clues. Since the police are a little apprehensive due to BTK, they actually have police keep an eye on Ruth during her lunch breaks if she's out and about for the next few weeks. They even go back to Fort Scott and look further into her attack there, hoping that maybe there's some clues, but it unfortunately turns up nothing. December of 1978 rolls around, and this time Lieutenant Dworsky receives a letter. It's pretty much just dissing him for protecting what he calls a whore, which is Ruth, but still no clues to go on. Was this letter delivered to the police station or to his home? You know, I'm not actually sure. It wasn't clear on where it was delivered to. But months pass and letters continue to come. But in July of 1979, the letters all be stopped. Ruth let her guard down, hoping that what Ed dubbed the poet, no, see, I was running with trying to bake bomb, had finally decided to move on. So Ruth went shopping, and on the way to her car, she hears, Hey, Ruth, I didn't you know you were going to make it so easy. So Ruth, she's heard this voice, she knows, she starts to run, but the man's right behind her and shoves her against the car and says, Get in. We'll go to a nice little place where it says keep out. And then he shoves her into the car. Ruth pulls away from his grasp and tried to go like around the car. But then he pulled a knife and he stabbed her back in the back two times. um, And then in the side one time. And the third time he stabbed her, he was having like an issue removing the knife. And while she was like, he was fighting to get the knife out of her. She broke free again. Again, and she ran to the other side of the car, got in, and took off. This woman is remarkable and a fighter. I'm really impressed by her will to survive. Ruth ends up darting into traffic, but she's losing blood pretty quickly. She gets to a gas station, sees a payphone, and doesn't call 911, but the police number that she had memorized. They said they were on her their way, and so she hangs up. But she realizes that her attacker might be close, and she doesn't want to just be a sitting duck, so she decides to drive home. What? I'm just talking about how great she is, but has she heard of, I don't know, maybe a hospital? Yeah, I'm not sure about the whole driving home thing. Thankfully, Ed has some sense, and the police have spent so much time with them now, and they're pretty chummy, so they call Ed right away and tell him what happened. So Ed is, like, waiting in the yard for her to pull up. How did he know she was coming there, though, and not the hospital? Like, maybe a same person would? Good question. Maybe of all the years of marriage and he just knew. I don't know. But when she gets there, she's asking him to, like, remove the knife. He just shoves her over and drives straight to the hospital. This knife turns out to be, like, an 8-inch blade, and she has a 2-inch deep knife wound from where the knife was lodged. The doctor said had it been any deeper, she would have been a goner, dead. They have police guard her room while she's in the recovery for the next nine days. While there, there's a nurse that told the police about a man that was matching the man's description who was asking about Ruth. Were the police able to find him after she said that? She didn't tell them that right away, so I guess he was gone, but no, the police never saw him. When Ruth was released, Lieutenant Dworsky personally stayed at their home for the next 48 hours, 
just in case the poets wanted to come back and finish what he started. Things start to get pretty calm for a while after that, and Ed thinks maybe he should try talking to this guy through the newspaper. I mean, it worked for BTK, right? So he puts an ad in the paper that said, Poet, tell me what I owe you. RSF. The poet responded back to the newspaper, and it said, To RSF, the price of my service to stay alive can now be settled at five. What does that even mean? I don't know, and neither did the police. Did anything significant ever happen at five? No, and maybe it wasn't even in time. Maybe it was a date. No. But, you know, who knows? The poet continues to send letters to the newspaper for, like, the next six months. How's that even possible? Don't you have to pay for the ads? Wouldn't there be something traceable? The papers are making tons of money selling this sensationalized stuff, so I'm sure they were willing to put it in for free. Plus, we already know there were no fingerprints. Yeah. So there was that. Yep. January of 1980, Captain Mike Hall takes over on Ruth's case when Lieutenant Dworsky gets promoted. The poet decides to write a letter to Captain Hall not long after he takes over the case, acknowledging, acknowledging his distaste for him as well. By December... Finley's phone lines have been cut twice, and so Ed put an alarm system on their back gate, and Captain Hall had surveillance cameras in the backyard. A thrilling murder mystery subscription box game, Killer Mystery, transforms game night into an immersive, captivating, and mysterious adventure. Puzzles, ciphers, online clues, and more make this game can't miss for mystery fans. Read the story cards, part the clues, and remember, everyone's a suspect. Season 1, The 80s Were Killer, is out now. Get yours today at www.killermystery.com. In the city of Cielo con Angelitos, dreams are made or broken in an instant. For one family, the dream turned into a nightmare overnight. The question everyone wants answered is... Who killed Kate and Lewis Hansen? And he had detectives that would monitor them 24-7. Wow. Talk about a really boring job, but I mean, I do get the need. Well, nothing happened in the backyard, but the poet left her a knife wrapped in a bandana at work with a poem in January of 1980, and he continued on with his poem, so I guess he was aptly named the poet. The letters also started going to other places, like utility companies, telling them to shut off their utilities. The health department received a letter saying that she was spreading venereal diseases. Construction companies, the bank, the mortuary, the DMV, you name it, a letter went there. I guess I get this is in a small town, but this has to be so humiliating. Yeah, and the police are doing all they know to do. They have detectives go through the utility bills to compare their handwriting samples. They got a profile from Dr. Murray Moran, who worked for on the Son of Sam case. He said that the poet was clearly and severely psychotic and pathological schizophrenic, extremely dangerous, and a loner. He also said that he believed the poet and BTK were similar, but he personally did not believe that they were the same person. 
So he really narrowed it down for them. I could have written that, except the poet and BTK weren't the same person. And again, that's just guessing. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty broad. Let's wait until the end to see how much of that profile he created is correct. Despite all of their efforts, the poet is not slowing down. He even leaves an ice pick and a bottle of urine on the front porch of the Finleys, as well as a bag of feces at various times, among other things. I get the cameras and security system on the fence when the, you know, the phone lines were being cut, but why not the whole house? Why not cameras in the front too? I don't know. And there may have been security system like in the house, but the police put the cameras on the house and maybe they couldn't afford it. I mean, I'm not sure. No matter how much time and manpower was given to this case, they just could not find the poet. On September 4th of 1981, Jaworski advised Chief Ed Lemunian that he received a letter from the poet that said after he took care of Ruth, he was going after Lemunian's wife. It was obvious he'd been stalking her because he knew what kind of car she drove, where she worked, how she got to work, and he laid it all out in this letter. Up until this point, the chief hadn't really been very involved in the case. But at this point, he took all the files home that weekend and spent his entire weekend pouring over this case. The following Friday, Chief Lemonian calls a meeting and tells the officer that he has determined who the poet is. He tells them it is Ruth Finley. What? There, there's no way. Well, that's exactly what the officer said, too. He outlines why he thinks this. Number one, never once had there ever been an eyewitness to any of the encounters that Ruth had with the poet. Number two, the Finleys lived at a dead-end street, yet no one, police, neighbors, no one, had ever seen the poet or found footprints. Number three, the day she was kidnapped, the police found only one set of footprints in the park. Number four, she called the police station rather than 911 when she was stabbed. Number five, as soon as the cameras went up in the backyard, nothing else happened there. And number six, the poet was sending letters to the newspaper constantly. But when the Finleys went on vacation, they stopped for the duration of their vacation, and then they resumed when they returned. That's all compelling, but I'm still, I just don't know if I see it. We'll say that it's all very circumstantial, would have a hard time holding up in court. But he tells the officers for the next two weeks, they're going to have to have constant surveillance on the Finleys. But no one can breathe a word of this to them. Even to their own spouses, they can't say anything. He says if it gets out in any way, everyone is fired. I guess that's one way to eliminate a moat. I will say one thing that gets me is the doctor at the ER said there was no way she could have stabbed herself in that. Well, Chief Lemunian takes his personal doctor for a second opinion. And he, do too, agrees he felt it was impossible for Ruth to stab herself. But this doesn't really deter the chief from his belief. The surveillance begins, and on day three, Ed drives Ruth through the mailbox in a parking lot while she puts the mail in. The police call the postman to open the box. There were five things mailed, and two of them were from the poet. No way. Yes. Three days later, the same thing happens. The police take a photo of Ruth putting the mail in. They retrieve the mail again. Four things are mailed, one being from the poet. They search her office at the phone company when she's not there, and they find a book of poetry. 
things with the poet's handwriting, a red bandana. They sent all of it to the lab and they conclude that the paper matched the poet, the stamps were used, or the stamps used on their utility bills, and they don't know for sure though is if Ed is in on this. So they call Ed and they read him his rats and they talk to him about two hours and then they reveal that they know who the poet is. They start showing their evidence and stunned, disbelief, shocked. They tell Ed that they need to rule him out and ask him to take a polygraph test, which he agrees to and he does. Once they rule Ed out, they pick Ruth up from work and they take her to the station and ask her if she can look at some mug shots. They tell her they know she's the poet, but of course she denies it. They show her the evidence and she begins to get a fragment of a memory writing a letter in the basement. Ruth doesn't completely remember anything and has no reasoning for anything they ask about. The night that she was driven to St. Joseph's and was put on 24-hour watch on the psychiatric ward. Ruth started therapy twice a day, and after months and months of therapy, Dr. Pickens uncovered that Ruth was sexually abused as a child by a neighbor that used to tie her up with a red bandana. Dr. Pickens says that this was dissociative disorder, where you disconnect between your identity and your consciousness. According to Dr. Pickens' assessment, was the night that Ed went into the hospital, the stress from that created another self to cope. Ruth spent the next seven years in therapy. Here is a clip of an interview with her where she says she remembers now stabbing herself. Hold it, but the man, I tried to get in the car, and there was a man there, and he said he was going to get in the car with me and where, where we were going. And I had this fight with him. And he stabbed you. Yes. But it was really you who stabbed you. I did later remember doing that myself. How much later? Several years. Years later. I'm sitting here with so many questions, though. I mean, first off, I'm going to say if the McMartin preschool thing taught us anything about therapy, it's that it can be suggestive. And all this seems really freaking crazy to me. I agree, but it could be a possibility. Let's start with the guy at the hospital the nurse saw. Who was that? The police do not know and could never account for that. What about the phone calls? I mean, Ed had them too, right? They assume just random hang-up calls. How did she stab herself in the back? Also no answer to that. I'm not saying that this is wrapped up with a pretty bow for us because, yes, there's definitely some questions. But unfortunately, I don't think we're going to get the answers that we want. So was the assault when she was 16 actually real? They have determined that that was real. I just still don't know what to say. So I guess, I don't know, just let let us know what you guys think about this one. We always recommend more bubbly and less OJ. Cheers. Cheers! If you'd like to see pictures from today's episode, you can find us at murder.mimosas on Instagram. You can also find us at murder.mimosas on TikTok, Twitter. And if you have a case you would like us to do, you can send that to murder.mimosas at gmail.com. And lastly, we are on Facebook at Murder and Mimosas Podcast, where you can interact with us there. 
We love any type of feedback you can give us. So please rate and review us on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.